Hi, and welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. Today, we're talking with Carolyn Miles, who is the chief executive of Save the Children USA. She's been with Save for over 20 years and brings a huge amount of experience to how to improve the lives of children in low-income places, but also crisis-ridden and conflict-affected places. We are excited to talk to Carolyn today because we care about children and how to save them. And so that's exactly what we're going to dive into in this episode. I'm really looking forward to better understanding a landscape of how children are uniquely affected by conflict and crises and humanitarian disasters, and more importantly, what the solutions are. Yeah, and I'm interested in getting into how you can particularly reduce the levels of infant mortality. It's actually an incredibly successful story we've seen over the last 20 years. And the question is how you can complete that improvement in the most difficult context that are the kinds that we work in. And I think we'll be able to dig into the the practical solutions around community health workers, but also the, the difficulty that we face in working with governments and other partners. Today on Displaced, Carolyn Miles. Thank you so much for being here, Carolyn. Thank you, Grant. Um, one of the goals for this episode is to really paint a picture for how you we can think about uh, children that are affected by conflict and crisis and in developing countries. And so I was hoping we could start off with you painting a picture of what are kind of the crucial issues and that people need to understand about children as kind of just a, an initial starting point. Well, I think when we think about um what happens to kids when they're displaced? First of all, there are millions and millions of children that are displaced right now. So the largest number that actually I think we've ever recorded uh, Mm -hmm. of kids that are displaced. So the numbers are huge. But the issues, I think, for children, uh, particularly if that displacement goes on for a long time, which oftentimes it does, it disrupts their whole childhood. So things that we take for granted as that our children would do or children would do normally, going to school, for example, that totally gets upended. And so education is a really, really important issue to think about. Healthcare, how do you make sure that, you know, as a child, you need to get regular vaccinations, you need to get regular health checkups. Kids obviously are really susceptible to things like pneumonia, which in the developing world are things that kill children. So having access to healthcare is really important. And then the third thing is is protecting kids. So oftentimes children, sadly, are weapons of war, I would tell you. So attacking schools, attacking hospitals, attacking communities where the probably worst thing that you can possibly do to a community is to kill their children. And unfortunately, that is sometimes used as a weapon of war. Children themselves can be... um, brought into forces, right, as soldiers, as young as eight and nine. So all of these are things, education, healthcare, protection of kids are all things that we really need to think about from a child's perspective when you think about conflict and displacement. And as I said, the numbers now are are huge. And what does the programming look like on the ground? If you take a particular example, um, how does it unfold in the first few months and, and, and beyond? And what does it end up looking like in terms of that healthcare protection and education programming? Well, at the beginning, and I, I think back to um, the beginning of the Syrian conflict maybe as a, as a good example to use because it's now been going for seven years. And so there's a lot of examples that we can think about. But initially, it looks maybe like an emergency response, right? You're worried about shelter. You're worried about food. You're worried about water. You're worried about the basics for those families. So I think about families that came across the border from Syria into Jordan. Save the Children was giving out. Uh, packs, which included food and clothes and water and basic household items that families would need as they set up to live in a in a, a temporary living uh, environment. So initially, you're thinking about those things. But really quickly after that, we try to move to education because education, and it sometimes people think about it as 
isn't that a luxury mm-hmm. for for people who are in the middle of a crisis? Isn't that, you know, shouldn't we just worry about food and shelter and education seems like a luxury, but it's really not a luxury for children. It is the, I would say, the most important thing in helping kids get back to this sense of something is normal about life, right? These are children who were almost always, they had some education access and they were in school in most crises. Certainly Syria is a prime example. You know, the literacy rates in Syria before this crisis were some of the highest in the Middle East. The The girls' literacy rate was the highest in the Middle East. So kids were in school. They were going to school. They were doing well. So now all of a the sudden, their whole world is turned upside down. If you can get them back to even just a couple hours of education, it feels like something normal. And then you can help kids start to go forward rather than just staying in limbo. So education for us is the most important next step. It's interesting. We were uh, talking with Sarah Smith, who's the IRC's Senior Technical Director for Education, and noting the disparity between the importance of educational need and what funding is online because it's, you know, Two uh, percent of the humanitarian allocation, and I'm I'm looking at you, Carolyn, seeing you roll your eyes in mm-hmm. frustration with this um, as we talk about it. But it's just such a stark comparison um, in terms of what the prioritization is and what's available. Right, and and there actually is a lot of effort now internationally to try to up that number from the two percent. So, um, the Global Partnership on Education. Um, there's a couple of different really. Uh, big efforts that bring together NGOs and donors and country governments to say, no, we have to be spending more. We have to be putting more focus on education. And, you know, the other thing that you you move quickly into, especially with these long-term displacements, is the psychosocial issues that impact kids. And if you think about, for many of these children, this is the only – This is the life that they've mostly known now. If I was a six-year-old when the war started in Syria, I'm now 12 or 13, right? Most of my childhood has been spent in the middle of a conflict zone, either inside or as a refugee outside or somebody who's displaced within my country. So if you think about a whole childhood that's spent in that way, the toll of that on children's psyche – is really, really important to address. And so this idea of psychosocial programming is a key part of what we also do. So one of the interesting features about the whole industry is that you have organisations like SAVE and IRC who get hundreds of millions of dollars in grants, but they are very restricted to particular uses by those donors. So we end up programming not necessarily with a free hand about what we would prioritise, either geographically or by sector. And I'm just interested in, you know, if you were yeah. uh, completely in charge of your budget and you just got, um, I don't know how big your budget is. It's about $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion. If you got that uh, in an unrestricted form, yes. how differently would what you do look like? Yeah. I mean, would you spend more on certain things, less on others? Would it shift geographically by age? And just for people who are listening who don't know the kind of humanitarian financing as well, uh, this question is the equivalent to saying, what would you do if you won the lottery? Because (laughs) the majority of funding that we get, as Ravi was saying, is uh, sectorally restricted. So we end up implementing in health or education or psychosocial uh, programming rather than being able to take a step back, identify the priorities, and then program accordingly. Yeah. So so I think the first thing that you would do – and There's lots of data out there that shows that the funding and the need is not necessarily overlapping. So the the first thing that I would do is I would really focus on where are those kids that are most left out. And if you look at any country and you look at a map of where – Let's say you're looking at child survival statistics and you look at where the most people – the most kids die, right, under the age of five. And then you overlay that with the money. You don't get a perfect match. Right? There are parts of the country where we're not putting the resources, and there's a reason usually behind that. Right, There's a reason that the government or donors don't want to put money into those areas where kids are dying at a higher rate. Right, So, one of the, so I'd certainly try to get those aligned. You would also probably 
spend more, frankly, at the national level advocating for those changes and trying to get the government to actually do more themselves. I mean, so much of what aid is about is about being a catalyst, right? Aid that's coming in from somewhere else is really about being a catalyst to try to get changes made in that country in a much bigger way than either Save the Children or IRC or any organization or group of organizations is going to be able to do because in the scheme of things, we're a little piece of the puzzle. So you're trying to really act as catalysts. So I would probably also spend more money advocating with that national government. So in the case of uh, Iraq, trying to make sure that the needs of refugees, for example, and displaced people is has a higher place on the agenda for that country and for that government and being able to show them that there are things that are actually going to really make a difference for the poorest people in your country and you need to be spending more of your efforts there. So So, uh, so many interesting things there. I wanted to pull on the first one around the dissonance between kind of the funding priorities and and where the need is as with respect to child mortality. Mm. Um, Is this something that when you look at kind of child mortality in particular that you see uh, a dissonance? um, Is it between countries or within countries or both? Can you can you take us through a little bit of what you experience and maybe illustrate it with kind of something you've seen? Because actually it's a a potential success story, isn't it? In terms of the the huge decline in. Yes. infant mortality rates. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with the good news, which is the success story. So because it is, and it's one of the, probably those stories that's least understood. But if you look at the statistics in 1990, there were about 12.6 million kids that were dying under the age of five in the developing world from things we could prevent, diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria in in sub-Saharan Africa. And in 25 years later, in 2015, that number was down to 5.9. So more than cut in half in 25 years, which is pretty amazing. But now what you're looking at is these are the kids that are really hard to save, frankly. That five point – it's now down to 5.6 million Mm -hmm. as of 2017. So – but these kids are in very poor rural communities. They're in deep uh, urban slums and you're really needing to get – kind of to that last mile. And there's 24 countries where 97% of those kids are dying. And there's about 10 where about 80% of those kids are dying. So there's quite a focus that you need to make in those countries. So the disparity between countries is one thing. The disparities, though, inside those countries, whether you look at the 24 or you look at the 10, big differences between the richest kids in those countries and the poorest kids in those countries. And that's what you're really trying to change is how do you get to those children? And I'll give you an example from um, – and the crises and conflicts, by the way, are a huge – have a huge impact on those statistics. Mm-hmm. So if you look at where kids are dying and you look at those those very tough countries, a lot of times they're either countries in conflict or they're or – they're, just out of conflict. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Somalia is a great example. I was just there last year. And this confluence of conflict, drought, um, you know, pastoralist lifestyles of people all combines to actually kill kids at a much higher rate. So there, and what kids are dying of are things like pneumonia, you know, But part of the reason they're dying of pneumonia is that they are extremely malnourished. So you go and you visit these feeding centers and you meet these kids who are just, you know, half the weight that they should be, if if not more. And they get an upper respiratory infection and it turns into pneumonia and they die. And it's the layering of all of those things that I think um, makes this so difficult. So... Those you, are things we have to address. And if you just take um, that particular issue and dive into it more, in more detail, these 10 countries that, that make up the bulk of the uh, infant mortality burden, um, presumably most of those are countries where it's quite difficult to basically partner with a government because the government isn't functioning or it's, mm-hmm. as you said, conflict-ridden or, or drought-ridden. So you're having to somehow do programming that either bypasses government or 
Uh, or, so, so speak more about the challenges of, of those countries and, and yeah. why it's more difficult to, to tackle the infant mortality burden there than all the countries where there's been huge progress. Yeah. So I think it is because of that conflict, although there are a couple countries in that list that are middle-income countries. So uh, India mm-hmm. is actually the place in the world where the most kids die every year. And that's a number, right? Not the percentage, but the absolute number because of the magnitude of kids. And there, it really is pushing the government in a much bigger way to save those kids' lives. But in conflict-affected states, um, it really, I I think, you've got all the access issues, right? So DRC is a good example. Or Nigeria, let's use Nigeria because it's actually a really interesting example where you have huge, in the north, you have huge child mortality rates. But obviously, you've got a lot of progress that's happening in Nigeria and other parts of the country. So it's getting access to those areas inside Nigeria that you can actually reach those children and getting the protection that workers need to be able to get to those places and stay in those places and continue to do those programs year in and year out because that's what's actually going to change the child mortality rates in those in those communities is you have to actually be there and be there for some long period of time. So one of the things that Save the Children spends on a lot of time on with child survival is is training community health workers because again these kids are dying it's the health system doesn't go out that far, right? Mm -hmm. So it stops kind of at this provincial level or this district level. It doesn't go out to the community. So training people to be there in the community where these kids are dying, to diagnose pneumonia, to treat pneumonia, to diagnose malaria, to and treat it, to be able to help a mother who's going to have a difficult birth, make sure that she can actually get to a health center. Those are things that you really have to, but it takes a long time. And this this community health worker point yep. that you make is absolutely critical because if you take a country like South Sudan, um, typically you might have a family that has to walk 20 kilometers to yep. the nearest clinic yep. if they're going to get access to treatment for some very preventable illnesses like malnutrition and through the wind and the rain and often insecure territory. So if you can actually bring that service to the village through these community health workers, which are often unpaid people who are in that village, it, it can really be transformational. But it's hugely difficult because um, in South Sudan, you might have very low literacy numeracy levels. So even uh, measuring someone's arm and, and seeing whether they are malnourished or uh, taking a patient name is, 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 is too difficult. So I know you and, and, and IRC as well have been developing a lot of tools that enable uh, low literacy health workers to do basic tasks like uh, diagnose and, and measure malnutrition. But the, the, the number of challenges seems so huge. It's, that's one element, actually, how do you put tools in the hands of these community health workers? But there's also supply chain challenges. How do you get um, life-saving drugs or, or, or food to places? And, and how do you finance the whole system? Because these community health workers are often unpaid, and that has its huge challenges. So when it comes to actually getting to solutions in these 10 places, what, where do you see the greatest um, hope, it, particularly around boosting this community health platform, which I think is crucial to the whole question? So there's a couple of, um, of ways, I think, to make this work. And we, we look to examples. And um, Ethiopia is a great example of where this has been really successful. So Ethiopia is a country that had very high child mortality rates. They actually met the MDG on child mortality Right, so they reduced child mortality by two thirds or and more. Just the I think. Millennium Development Goals. Yes, yeah. the Millennium Development Goals. And Sorry. can you remind us what the actual uh, metric was for that? Uh, I think it was reducing child mortality by two thirds. Yeah. I believe that was mm-hmm. the the uh, the Millennium Development Goals. So they they actually did that, and the re- and the way that they did it was to embrace this idea of community health workers and actually make them part of the health system. So they became paid. Very little. They didn't get paid much, but they were considered official part of the health system. And they now have 34,000 community health workers in Ethiopia that are part of the health system. And they are they get training. They get, you know, very small amounts of money, but they do get money. They get recognized, which is probably one of the most important things. They're recognized as working for the Ethiopian government. And that has totally changed. And that was started by organizations like Save the Children and others doing this program and demonstrating that it worked. So we have to do more of that. Mm -hmm. I, I also think 
one of the most um, promising areas for child survival is in technology. So if you look at some of the tools that are being developed now, I'll give you two good examples, um, both around the issue of pneumonia. So pneumonia, as I said, is... I, th I think I said, is one of the uh, main killers of kids under the age of five. It's actually the single disease that kills the most kids. So out of that 5.6 million, almost a million die of pneumonia. Diagnosing pneumonia is not easy. Mm -hmm. You have to actually sit there with a stopwatch and time the breaths of a tiny baby or child breathing really fast and try to figure out what that respiratory rate is. That's really tough. I've tried it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. So there's a couple of tools. One is a, a tool that it actually, it's a little ultrasound wand and you plug it into a cell phone and the health worker scans the lungs of the baby and a diagnosis comes up on this, on the cell phone with, mm -hmm. and you can use graphics, you can use words, you can use local language, Right. It's an automated diagnosis. So it's an not automated information diagnosis. that's being sent to No, it's, it tells the community mm -hmm. health worker right there. The second is a monitor that Philips has um, developed, which straps to the baby's chest, and it does the same kind of thing. It counts the resp respiratory mm. uh, rate, and actually they're building one now that also is measuring the oxygen. It's a an oximeter that uh, goes on the baby's foot or their hand, and it also measures the oxygen rate, and that gives you a diagnosis of uh, whether the child has pneumonia and what kind, because that really will help on the treatment side. So that's literally a magic wand. <laughs> it, yeah, yes, it is. It is a bit of a magic wand. Now, there's a long time. Your former branding consultant is. is <laughs> yeah, there, there's a there's a long time, obviously, between the magic wand. The diagnosis, the treatment, getting mm -hmm. the antibiotic then that needs to treat that child in that place. But these are starts. These are these are things that will really help in terms of and and not just the diagnosis at the time, but of course, because you've now got this these things automated and they're able to be downloaded or they're giving you data, you're also going to get the data that's going to start to tell you where, what are the rates of different kinds of pneumonia in different places, and what does that look like, and how do we help then on a bigger scale really attack those problems? So one of the things that we're really grappling with is when to use technology in the context we're working in, and whether it's um, technology of the sort that you described or very, very simple tools. So let me give you an example. In diagnosing and treating malnutrition, you can um, diagnose based on a, uh, a measuring tape, which measures the circumference of an arm. And from that, you can discern whether somebody's malnourished or not. Now, obviously, at the moment, with numbers, um, if you've got a, a health worker who can't actually count, that's not going to be useful. So there are two ways in which we could tackle that. One, which is something we are uh, piloting at the moment, is a purely colour-coded yeah. measuring tape without any of the numbers and then some uh, patient registers that just have symbols for people's names. So essentially you've got a way of uh, doing this even if you can't read or, or, or count. The other version, however, would be to give someone a mobile phone and say, take a photo of somebody's arm and use a algorithm to convert that picture into a uh, into a measurement and then take a picture of the face and that will give you a, a patient record. And, and both of these, I think, are perfectly valid. My question, though, is that in the places where the disease burden is the, is the worst, in the South Sudans, you're probably going to have incredibly weak connectivity. Um, the community health workers will probably not be able to necessarily use a mobile phone. Um, and so, therefore, uh, is it better to actually invest in the low-tech tools, the ultra-simple things, um, given that's where the, the disease burden is? So I, I think it, it really depends. And having, you know, been recently to uh, Somaliland, we're using the red-green-yellow the red -green -yellow tapes, mm -hmm. right? And they actually work really well. And I think – and using the – you're just putting a red-yellow-green next to the child's name. So you're, you're, you're getting the name and the and – you know that that diagnosis, but I do think the the value of the more automated technology is actually on the back end. I would I would say the measurements and the data, the data. And the, yeah. because taking the data that you have in those registers and inputting that data, and then it, the time that it takes to do that from these remote areas 
if you can get that data on a regular basis and you can get connectivity, enough connectivity to be able to actually gather that data, that's just a much faster way to be able to move your program and, and adjust what you're doing based on what you're seeing you know, within a couple days rather than months, mm -hmm. which is sometimes what it takes to get the registers entered and do that whole analysis. So, mm -hmm. so from that standpoint, if, if the capability is there to do the automated technology, then I think that the advantage is really on the data side. This is why I think we should be just dropping in internet towers everywhere we mm. go um, to, to kind of generate this. But it's, I mean, there's the three components of it, right? You're reducing the costs of just program administration through yes. automation. You're generating data that you can use for trends. And then three, you're creating a platform that allows you to actually pivot programming to kind of improve targeting and, and outcomes. But yeah, one thing that you mentioned was data and uh, that is a huge challenge to actually not just collect the data, but particularly to use it usefully. Mm. And if I think of one of the biggest challenges in this whole field, it's actually getting good quality services, not just the, the quantity and availability up. So, mm. for instance, community health workers, how do you improve their performance? How do you monitor what they're doing? Um, how do you tackle problems and, and, and bottlenecks and, and deal with supply chain issues? So I'm interested in your... Uh, Again, you must have made a huge organizational push in this over the last mm. few years, particularly how you use data and measurement to drive up quality of, for instance, community health worker uh, performance. Yeah, and and I think it. Um, I, I think one of the tr one of the things that is so important in using this technology is to introduce it gradually. So I think where we've seen it not work is when you try to kind of throw a whole bunch of things to into a community health worker system and get them to try to use all of them right at once. It's really difficult. So you start with and you, you also need to really understand what did they see as really useful because if all you're doing is introducing technology that's about data gathering and monitoring and things like that and it's not helping them in their day-to-day -day job, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And so an example would be rather than – so a lot of our – our training when you're when a community health worker is talking to a mom about um, safe delivery, for example, and in in many communities where we work, moms still give birth at home. There's a big push to try to get moms into health centers to give birth, but there are many places where that just is not just not going to happen. So there's they actually used to use a little flip book. Mm -hmm. So it's got pictures mm -hmm. and it has local language and the community health worker literally kind of went through the flip book. Now they're using iPads mm -hmm. where they can with little films, mm -hmm. obviously with local people in local language talking about how they prepared for birth and how that went and what they found out when they had a baby at home and what was really important much more effective. They then test the recall of the the mothers to see what did they remember from the flip book and what did they remember from the movie. Not surprising, the movie is something that, you know, they can recall and they can go back and re recall the main messages of what they should do, right? <laughs> Simple technology. I mean, we're not talking about, but that's technology where helps the community health worker, makes them feel like, I'm bringing something to the to the to the my client. Um, it's really helping. I'm seeing them actually get it, and then it's easier to come behind that kind of technology with additional things. I, I think the say. fundamental insight that 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 resonates with me is that for a lot of solutions, particularly in health, um, mm -hmm. we know what the actual like solution is. Yes. We know how to solve pneumonia. We know how to mm -hmm. reduce child mortality. The fundamental problem is designing. Uh, the way that we deliver the interventions, the way that we increase uh, uptake and compliance um, and change behavior and norms to actually then make them work. Uh, in addition to, of course, some of the resource constraints. But that, that to me is like the fundamental design question in a lot of these spaces that often gets discounted. Yeah. And the changing behavior pieces really can be really, really challenging. I mean, that if you think about things like cha changing tact a little bit, Early marriage. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason early marriage for Save the Children is such a critical issue is that a couple things. One is most girls, who, if they're getting married at 13 or 14, that's the end of education. So obviously, we want kids to get through as much education as they possibly can, and this ends education for girls. 
more – well, not more importantly, but as importantly, it also is more likely to then result in a pregnancy early. So a girl who has a baby, a child who has a child at 14, that child is much more likely to die, much more likely to be premature, much more likely to get sick in those first couple of years, right? So when we think about the long term, that issue of early marriage, we're really trying to – you know, to, to really change that because it not only has an effect for that girl but for her future children. But it's a behavior that's really hard to change. It is really hard to change. And I was in Malawi just a couple months ago and one of the things we had, we're with the first lady of Malawi and we were there to open a secondary school for girls and boys. So to get 50% girls, 50% boys in this village to go on to basically the equivalent of high school. But her main message to the people in those villages was stop marrying your girls off at 14, 13 and 14. We have to stop that if we want our country to progress. And it's tough to change. And this question of behavior change runs right the way through all of the outcomes you were talking about. So if you take education, how do you get teachers to turn up or change their practice similarly with health workers? Um, Behavioural science is very um, uh, popular and and lots of interest in it uh, at the moment. We're uh, hiring behavioural scientists, working with them and uh, trying to apply it in our work. I'm interested in how you've been thinking about behaviour change, given that it's not enough just to build clinics or schools. You've actually got to really focus on the humans who are uh, delivering it. Yeah. I think one of the most important things about driving behaviour change is that the way to do it is from the inside out. So you need to find people in the communities. And, you know, most of – 99 percent of the people who work for Save the Children in a country are from that country, right? And an awful lot of our staff will be from that area. They might not be from that community, but they'll be from that area. But what's really important is finding local leaders, influencers in those communities who are going to take the lead in terms of changing the behavior because you need people who have the ear – of people who you want to change. So an example, um, in many of our programs, we actually focus on mother-in-laws when it comes to birth behavior because mother-in-laws are the ones that actually have the power in those families because women move in with the husband's family and the mother-in-law often is there in that extended family and she decides how it's going to go. Is the woman going to go to the hospital to give birth? Is she going to give birth at home? If she gives birth at home, is there going to be a skilled birth attendant? Is there not? Lots of power there. So you try to find then a group of mother-in-laws who actually really get behind this behavior change. And if what you're trying to do is get these women to go to the, the health clinic and make a plan to get there and actually get there, you enlist the mother-in-laws because they have the power in that in that particular community. So yeah. you got to look for the people who have the power and then you've got to convince them that that behavior change and the way, of course, to get the mother-in-laws on board is this is about the health of your grandchildren mm-hmm. and you want healthy grandchildren and you want them all to have, you know, a fantastic life so they can also help take care of you. And those are the messages and, and those things work. Vox just launched a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and you can find it on Netflix right now. It's for people like you, people who are curious about the world around them. And here's our promise. If you give us 15 minutes of your time, or sometimes 20, sometimes we can stick to the 15-minute limit. So 15 to 20 minutes of your time will take you from being just curious about a big, important topic to actually understanding it. Our first few episodes explore things like... Why is monogamy so important around the world? What happens when we can actually edit our DNA and take control of our own evolution? Why is the racial wealth gap in America still growing? You'll see it's Vox to its core. It's a bigger and more ambitious, yes, but still looking and feeling and sounding like us. And we'll hopefully give you the context and reporting and research that actually makes these super, super satisfying, I think the most satisfying videos we've ever made. So go to Netflix and check it out. You can search for it, you can search for Vox, or you can just go to netflix.com slash explained. What happens if you play Monopoly 
with real money. You've got to pay the piper. Okay, let's pay the piper. There are no free lunches in this. The Outline World Dispatch. Every Monday through Thursday, we bring you a new story from theoutline.com. You started, Carolyn, by talking about the three main outcomes, education, protection, health. To what extent, though, does thinking in those uh, silos Mm -hmm. potentially get in the way of better quality care? And to what extent can you organise your budgets, your services around the child rather than those professions? Yeah, it does. And it goes back to your question about if you had a magic wand and you could, you know, all your funding was unrestricted. Mm -hmm. And this idea that a child is not a health child or an education child or a protection child, obviously it's one child. Um, How do you do those things? One of the ways that Save the Children tries to do that, and I know other organizations do as well, is we try to bring in funding from lots of different places around a program so you can add these other elements to it. Um, We also try to get sectors, what we call the sectors, health, education, protection, to actually work together on joint programming. So where we can and where we have the flexibility with resources, you actually try to do that, those things together. Um, I have to say it's probably one of the things in the system of international development that's probably still broken in terms of being able to, to take down those barriers between things because it isn't actually the way it works in a community. But would um, our services look radically different if you just took away those um, sectoral restrictions and gave money for children rather than yes. for educational health? How, how, paint a picture of what it would look like yeah. in a village. For you. So you would, instead of thinking about health education protection, you'd probably think a lot about life cycle of that, mm-hmm. children, of that child. So you'd start by thinking, okay, The most important thing, and we spend a lot of time on early intervention because, Mm -hmm. of course, the impact of an early intervention on the life of that child is huge and it's much magnified versus things that you're going to do later in their lives. So you would start with the health of the mother, the health of the having a healthy pregnancy, really looking at then how do we do everything that that child needs in that first month, first of all, because that's when a lot of kids die. And then how do we do things in that first five years? And that's about early education. That's about health. That's about protection from conflict, all of those things. But you you take more of a life uh, cycle approach than this mm-hmm. kind of stovepiped approach, I think. And, and of course, that's – you're going to get better outcomes because if, if you're looking at the whole – environment for that child and you're able to give early interventions on health care, so to get the survival rate, you're able to get education started early. So that child's more likely to be successful in school if they get even just a year of some kind of preschool, they're going to be much more successful, right? So surrounding those, those early years with all the things that you need. And we would probably spend even more of our time and efforts on the early years. So than we even do now. This is a perfect time to then ask, what's a child? Um, and, I, <laughs> yeah. and I ask this because, I mean, yeah. historically you see such an evolution in the conceptualization of what, what children Grand are. doesn't have children, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Self-revealing. Uh, you know, industrial revolution in yes. that age, children are labor, and then yes. increasingly there's a, a sense of um, them having in, uh, more rights, which is, you know, part of the origin story of Save the Children. Yes. Um, and now, you know, one of the reasons I ask is because I think the, uh, the parameters of what constitutes Children, uh, childhood and youth has really expanded. So yes. I was working with the UN Population Fund in Burundi. And in that country, we had defined youth, which is potentially different than child- childhood, as up to age 34. Yeah. And that was at a time when I think life expectancy was, you know, maybe 50. And so you were essentially kind of in your almost near the end of your kind of lifespan and you were still considered youth. So take us through how we now define and think about what constitutes childhood. Sure. Well, I do think it's, I do think it's different childhood and youth. We define children as zero to 18. So that's Mm -hmm. the definition that we use. Um, We define youth usually up to about 24. Um, So, and we're thinking about youth also obviously as parents of future children. So we're also taking that perspective. Um, but I, I think um, the the importance of young people 
is really because you've got such a huge youth bulge in the world that that area has become a much much bigger part of everybody's work mm-hmm. i think in terms of thinking about what are the future pathways for these young people and a lot of it more and more of it in terms of the work that we do with youth is about employment so we're really looking at how are we preparing youth for employment, how are we actually connecting them to employment. So working with the private sector to actually make sure that young people are getting the skills that they need and that that companies and private sector actually needs. So pulling a few strands together, when you're thinking about uh, conflict-affected, conflict-affected countries yes. where you see the burden of a lot of these issues um, that face children, these are also areas where uh, – people, individuals exit out of childhood much earlier, likely. Mm-hmm. So they be they move into labor, they move yes. into the labor market, they move into jobs. And it gets at the key question that we're talking about in behavior change and culture. So do you uh, think about one of the enterprises being actually just helping communities or countries rethink how they conceptualize childhood? Like, is that yeah. one of the bigger issues? Yeah, I think, you know, our ideally – Every child would have between the ages of zero and 18, they would actually not be working. They would actually be able to continue to go to education, you know, pursue education. They would actually have available health care. That would be the ideal. That isn't actually the reality in many of the places where we work. By the age of 14 or 15, a lot of kids are working uh, in the communities where we work. But we still... And we don't say that that's wrong because in some communities, that's how families are going to survive. Mm-hmm. But what we do say is the work has to be safe for kids and kids have to be able to still go to school. And so if you're going to if you're going to have children working before 18, because they're still children, then it has to be combined with the ability to go to school. And so we spend a lot of our time in those communities really working on what are the alternatives to full-day school or formal school? What are the alternatives for kids? That's really interesting because you have 168 million children who are working yes. now globally. Yes. And I think there was a, a moment in the arc of thinking about these problems where the motivation was get children out of work, get children out of factories, get children to stop working. And it really didn't take seriously the actual just political economy of the situation that survival is contingent on a lot of these children working. And so this is a model where you can see a transition and you can see kind of expanding the aperture for children having a more fuller life and also working in a safe way. Yeah. And, and that's actually been Save the Children's position for a long time. And I think it's based on the reality on the ground. It's it's not the ideal. We would always say the ideal is that no child really has to work before the age of 18 and they have the ability to go to school as much as they possibly can. But it isn't the reality in, in pretty much any of the places that we work in the developing world. And you mentioned earlier this life cycle perspective. Yeah. And it's clear that there's obviously a major neglect of the early years in terms of investment that's been corrected. And there's now more emphasis going on early childhood development than there was, but it's still very slow. But the other big neglected area is adolescence. Mm. And I'm interested in, you know, you said earlier that you're increasingly focused on uh, focusing on pathways into employment. But what do you think is an effective program for um, the adolescent age range? Um, particularly given that I think the evidence is is relatively weaker in that area compared to primary school and and early years. Yeah. So we actually, a couple things, in addition to that that getting ready for employment uh, approach, we also spend a lot of time in the adolescent period on sexual reproductive health because that is a key critical factor in the future for for those young people. And we actually start pretty early. So mm-hmm. 10, 11 year olds is when we start introducing those that kind of programming into the work that we do. And in a lot of countries, you know, 11 or 12, that's the end of school, fifth or sixth grade, and kids are done with education. So making sure that they are getting that basic sexual reproductive health information, they understand, you know, what their choices are, they understand basic reproductive health and what happens and they know what those you know those those options are that they have that's a really important part of what we what we do mm-hmm. um because again it's about not and i keep going back to this but we're i think all of us are looking at these issues from the long term it's certainly about that child that particular child and their life but it's also about what happens down the road and we know that if that 
child, girl, or boy waits to have a family until they're older, the outcome for that family, for those children, is going to be so much better. And so you're trying to give kids choices. Can I move us on to something a bit different, which is you you obviously run, save the children. What keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's a combination of things. Um, You know, part of it is you do worry about the people who work for Save the Children. And unfortunately, you know, we've had some recent incidents. We had four staff that were very tragically killed in Afghanistan just a a couple months ago. And so you do worry that are we doing everything that we can to keep our our teams of people safe? That's because we can't do the work. Our biggest asset – the only asset actually Save the Children has is the 25,000 people who work for Save the Children and Mm -hmm. make the change that we make on the ground. And if we can't – Make sure that they're as safe as we can possibly make them. It's it's going to be tough to do what we're trying to do for kids. So so that certainly keeps me awake at night. Um, I think the other thing is just thinking about the future of what we all do in this sector and what are the things that are going to dramatically – making sure that we're taking advantage of the things that can dramatically change the impact of what Mm -hmm. we do, whether that's working with the private sector, whether that's introducing technology, whether that's, you know, pushing more and more of this to local, to national governments to take responsibility for it. What are the things that we can really do to really change the trajectory, especially in these really, really poor, difficult, conflict-ridden kinds of countries. What is it that's going to actually change that in a bigger way? And sometimes I feel like we're we're so ingrained in the way that we've done things that it's really hard to get people to to really change their ideas. And we have many people in our organizations who have done this. I, I mean, I've been at Save the Children for 20 years. So mm-hmm. you get people who have been doing this for a long time and it's trying to figure out how do you jolt people out of the way that they've always done it and say, and it's hard because actually the way that you've always done it is still working, right? Mm -hmm. So the hardest thing to do is to get people to change when what they're doing actually is working and having results, right? So what is it that you're trying, that you can do to get people to see, but that might be true, but, you know, 10 years from now, it's not going to can you tell us how to fix that problem? We're trying to solve it too. Or can you give us some examples? And I ask because yes. you know we're in the innovation unit. This is something that yep. at the IRC we grapple with this all yep. the time. How do you change big institutions where yep. one, as you correctly say, people are having impact through the work that they're doing. Yep. So it's a conversation about uh, yes and yes. how do we kind of improve, amplify, yep. you know, change these um, pieces yep. and restructure, you know, very large organizations to to do this. And so would love to hear examples yeah. from your experience that you think illustrate ways to actually change this. Yep. So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on at Save the Children, and I know IRC is as well, is this idea of building innovation and how do you do that? So we started a couple years ago with a little team. It's like two people, right? Um, But their mandate is actually to build innovation across the organization and starting from kind of the bottom up. So we actually have a little fund that we use to fund these innovations and you have to apply for that Mm -hmm. fund. But we're really trying to get those to come from the country offices themselves or from the practitioners that are really close to the problems to try to develop those things and then giving them just a little bit of capital, a little bit of money to try to take those innovations to the next step. And we've been at this for a couple of years now and we've had – You know, the most important thing about this, I would say, is you really have to encourage people to fail Mm -hmm. because in our organizations, failing is really hard and you want to fail small, right? So this Mm -hmm. is – these are very small failures. But if we don't try some of these things, we're never going to know whether or not this is going to be part of these big solutions, those turning points that I talked about. So getting people to kind of – Fail small, but but not be afraid to fail and put those ideas forward as part of this is 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 one of the challenges. Really driving it from the countries up is another big, big challenge. And getting our country offices to have the time and have the bandwidth to go off and do some of these things because they're extremely 
focused on delivery of the programs that we're doing right now. So how do you open up that space for people and get that to happen? But I'm convinced that, again, some of our best ideas are going to come from people on the ground doing those. I'll give you one quick example. In um, Bangladesh, they've designed an app. It's basically a an app that our beneficiaries actually use to rate services in their communities. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, you know, a Craigslist or a, or a, no, an Emily's list, I guess, uh-huh. or, like or a Yelp Angie's or so, list. Yeah. Yes, Angie's list. Mm-hmm. So or Yelp, where they're actually rating those things, right? Mm-hmm. And these could be government services, they could be local services that mm-hmm. they're getting, they could be private or public, mm-hmm. right? But they're basically then able to use this app to go and seek out those services and use the reviews mm-hmm. of those things to determine whether or not they want to they want to go and we're finding that that is having a big impact on the quality we talked mm-hmm. before about quality how do you actually get quality of services to improve and these are not necessarily they could be save the children services but they could be, be anybody's services, services yeah. right you're putting the power into the hands of the users and you're trying to develop an ecosystem that actually drives performance in a way that, you know, most poor people Mm -hmm. don't have. So if the first step in the innovation process is to generate some ideas and you're focused very much on your frontline practitioners doing that, often the second stage is to try and test it and work out which ones are promising and which ones are not. The third, though, is often trying to scale it and, and pump some capital in to expand the ideas. And is that something you are doing? What are the challenges in, you're facing in, in, in scaling? Yeah. So we've just started to take these ideas then to the next step. And what you need at that next step is you need a partner, right? So you need to go to a partner, either an individual or in our in our case, the most successful areas for partnership seem to be with companies. So we're starting to take those, once they've gotten through that first phase of the pipeline, And it looks like there's an idea here that actually could be scaled, right? And we start at the beginning with those ideas by saying there needs to be some path to scale, Mm -hmm. right? You need to think through what the path is to scale because if we don't have one, then, you know, this is – it'll be great. It'll be a great little experiment, but we won't be able to scale it if it works. So they need to start with that path to scale. And then we need to bring in partners to help us on that path to scale. And 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 a lot those, of times it's companies. Yeah, and with those companies. Yep. Yeah. I'm doing a quick mic adjustment for you. Okay. Sorry. Sure. Am I moving around too much? Here, which is perfectly okay. what a normal person would do, so that's fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So we've got you in Got it. Great. Great. Okay. Thank you. Um, where was I? Uh, Part- scale. Partnership and scaling. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the private sector there. Yes. I think what doesn't work is when it's a CSR, corporate social responsibility mm-hmm. type engagement. What you really want is those private sector organisations to think that this is something which will uh, be profitable for them, but also serve the needs that you have as yeah. Save the Children. Have you got examples where you've really managed to get that, where the private sector is coming in uh, and investing significant capital in because they think they can make money? Yeah. So the Philips example that I used before on the pneumonia monitor, they do believe that they'll be able to take that to the point where they will there's there will be a market. Now that might be governments, right? Mm-hmm. In countries where you have high child mortality rates and lots of kids dying of pneumonia, or it might be organizations like mine, mm-hmm. right? It might be save the children buying these monitors. But they believe that there is a market there. So they got into it and they were very up front, obviously, about that from the beginning. That and they're how did developing. it begin? How did, how did that start, that innovation? It started actually by, <laughs> it started actually a couple of years ago when there was a uh, conference where people were talking about pneumonia and they were talking about kids dying of pneumonia and they were talking about the fact that this was really hard to diagnose and Philips is in the diagnostic, the health diagnostic field and they do a lot of work in developing countries. It wasn't a it wasn't a product that they were necess- that were, they were working on prior to that, but they said, we think we have the technology that actually we're using for other things that we could turn to this. And then they looked for partners that would be willing to test it in field conditions to see if it could actually work and hold up under those conditions. So it, it came out of 
really starting with the problem, which I think is really important when we think about innovation, is that it's not about a technology that we're looking for something to do with. Mm-hmm. It's about a problem that we're trying to solve and then thinking about how does technology actually help me solve mm-hmm. it. That's where I think you got to start. And outside of innovation more narrowly defined, you as a leader must be also launching various change initiatives, improvements, more top down that aren't coming from the field. Yep. Uh, how do you do that well, particularly in an organization like Save, and we're all very similar. Mm. Uh, and the key facet is that they are quite decentralized. If you're yes. the country director running your programs in Jordan, yep. necessarily you feel a high degree of autonomy yep. and you don't particularly want HQ uh, telling you what to do. So how do you how do you do change management in one of these large organizations? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways from the from the leadership level. Um, first of all, you uh, talk about it so people know you think it's important, right? That sounds pretty simple, but I only have so many hours in a day that I can talk about things. So for me, innovation is one of those things that I actually make a point to talk about when I'm talking to our teams and when I'm traveling and when I'm, you know, meeting with any of our folks, I talk about it. So you you make sure people know you think it's important and then you set up some incentives for people to get involved. And the innovation fund that we set up is an incentive, pure and simple. It's, you know, we're going to actually give you some funding that you can have to actually go out and try to move this to the next step. And that, in a lot of cases, people just don't have those resources to do. And we're is also going to work. How big is that, that fund? Is it? uh, it's about a million, a mm-hmm. little over a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So in the scheme of things, it's, it's very mm-hmm. tiny. Mm-hmm. But it does give people that ability. And you also work with their management to make sure they have the time, mm-hmm. right? This those is, are the yeah. two commodities, mm-hmm. resources, money, and time that people need to be able to do those things. So you, and then the other thing that I would say is really important in organizations like ours is recognition, right? When people actually, whether it works or it doesn't work, recognizing that people tried and recognizing that they learned and recognizing that they made something happen, that is really important. And almost more than anything, you know, In the world we work in, bonuses and things like that, it's really about people being recognized for the – what they did towards helping you on the mission. And I think this is the crucial part about changing culture in these institutions um, to actually embrace innovation and take risk. Um, because, you know, if you are, you know, a frontline uh, humanitarian worker, the last thing you want to do is take a risk that you're not confident in because failure may mean that you yep. have a, you know, miss an opportunity for huge impact on people's lives. Yep. Um, and so you need to shift the culture of that being normed to something that's okay Okay, uh, to ultimately have greater impact. But I think, you know, these are like, I, I think we all need to get together and do like fail fests. Yes, um, yes. Which I don't think, I've, at least to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen in the humanitarian sector. Yeah. Um, and simply use that as a way to kind of renorm around recognition of people taking risk around things that are going well, things that are going wrong, yep. and generate more information sharing as well. Yeah. Um, well, and at the end of the day, the ability to actually drive that change is a huge there's a huge win there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's okay to take some risks to get to those wins because at the end of the day, you're going to be saving more lives. You're going to be making sure more kids get into school. You're going to be protecting you know, people and families. And so y- you need to try those new things because the payoff at the end can be so much bigger. That gets back to this, are we doing enough to get to the bigger level impacts that we really need to have? But don't you think, I mean, when I think about this, my concern is that the scale of investment in innovation yeah. is sort of pathetic compared to the complexity of the challenges we're facing and the need to dramatically improve impact. And logically, I think you'd set aside you know, 10% of your budget, say, yeah. for R&D, uh, 100 million, not 1 million. And, um, and that would give you the real capacity to employ significant numbers of people and run lots of experiments uh, and, and move things on. Because I fear that if you carry on in our current state, and this is across the sector, mm-hmm. and it's all about the, the nature of the funding that we get as organisations, which tends to be quite risk averse mm-hmm. and restricted to particular activities rather than allowing us to uh, to, to be flexible. And so for some context setting, uh, Deloitte did a study on this and basically benchmarked that in the private sector, you see about 5% of total budgets invested in R&D or innovation yes. and in the humanitarian sector, it's you know a shaving of less than 1%. Yes. Um, so the expectations of what innovation doing in 
and the way in which it's funded is just radically lower. So I would say yes to all that. We need to accelerate the progress. But if I think about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and what existed in our sector— it was zero. So, <laughs> yeah. So in the you know, this is the long term yeah. game, right? So, with so that denominator, I that totally is. agree that we need to do much more. Now we need to start multiplying, mm. and but you, you know, mm. we we have made progress, and so the question is, how do we accelerate that progress? Yeah. And one thing, one point that people always make to me is, well, are you collaborating with other organisations yes. and pooling your efforts to innovate? And I sometimes react to that by saying, well. I think we should collaborate with organisations which have different and complementary expertise. So your Phillips example is a great one. But if we collaborate with you and with all the other big players, sometimes we're just adding the same type of expertise and adding transaction costs. Um, And actually, there's a certain amount of competition that sometimes is good for innovation in most sectors. So interested in your view about when should we be collaborating as organisations and when should we actually compete? Yeah, I I mean, I think more collaboration definitely is needed and more convening, I would say. You know, if I think about another example, CRS, which is doing a lot of technology for development Mm -hmm. work. And they have been for a long time. Yep. And they have been for a long time. And they've actually spent a lot of time trying to convene all of us to bring all of those things to, you know, to common forums where we all talk about them. I think that convening piece is really, really important. And we've got to do more of that. And maybe, uh, you know, we don't want to go back to the like sector specific, get Mm -hmm. ourselves back into those silos, but we want to think about what are the right ways to organize that that convening, fail fests and technology for development, you know, around Mm -hmm. very specific uh, things that we're all trying to drive collectively. Maybe it's around the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, right? But ways to do that, I think, much more, much more needed. I would say convening to me is a really important part of the collaboration mm-hmm. piece. And you know, maybe we set up competitions. Mm-hmm. Why not? Cross I mean, maybe we say yeah. across agencies, let's mm-hmm. have a, uh, an innovation. I mean, if you think about. Um, you know, the kinds of things that uh, business schools do with pitch competitions, mm-hmm. right? They do stock pit- pitching mm-hmm. competitions between schools. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we do an innovation pitch competition and try to get some of our supporters to, you know, put money behind us mm-hmm. doing it? It's also one of, the thing, one of the reasons why I think everything should also move to kind of open source and like yeah. transparent just to know what uh, people are working on and are doing. And the thing that I oftentimes think about is, all of the amazing work that goes into kind of program and innovation development get then submitted to donors. Maybe one or two or three of the programs actually get selected, whereas, you know, 90, 100 don't. Mm-hmm. And I, and I dyingly want to know what those 90 or 100 are. I think yes. we could make so much more progress if we saw the fuller picture. The one yeah. um, uh, competition that I think did this well was the MacArthur 100, yes, 100 and Change, change. Yeah. where, you know, you had many, many organizations applying for this and they put up all of the content, yes. and you just got to see the full library and suite of what was uh, yep. what was forwarded, and that was that was really fantastic. An, wanted, an, an excellent organization that's um, chosen wisely, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> a little yes. self-promotion there with the IRC and Sesame <laughs> Workshop. We're, we're lucky to have uh, yes. uh, won that. It's a wonderful award. So it's we, fantastic. I want to I want to wrap with asking a bit more of a personal question. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, in your profile, you studied animal behavior in college, um, and I want to know how that shaped your view on human. Humanity, humanity and how you think about humanitarian response. Yeah, well, I often say my animal behavior background comes in really handy in working at Save the Children. <laughs> um, but, but you know, honestly, one of my earliest um, interests was in behavior and why not just animals but people behave the way that they do. And that's why my, my major in business school was marketing because that's all about trying to understand why people do the things that they do and buy the things that they buy and think the way they do about different products, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, And I think that's been really helpful both in terms of thinking about behavior change. We were talking about about it before. How do you actually get people to change the way they think about the futures for their children, particularly if we're talking about, you know, moms and dads? That is a huge key to what Save the Children is doing and and the only way we're going to be successful is if more and more people in the world have that view and and we try to change that behavior. It's also I think from a um, 
you know, from a humanitarian uh, situation and, and thinking about the people who work for Save the Children, I mean, the most important thing I would say about the work that we all do collectively is that people are there because they believe in this mission, right? They believe that they can actually be part of something that is going to drive the world to change, right? And for us, that's this mission of making sure that every child actually has an opportunity to be everything that they they want to be. And that understanding that that's what drives people and that that's the behavior you're really trying to to, to get to um, has been, I, I think, a key. I came from the corporate world and I try, you know, my first couple of years at Save the Children, I was like, how does this all work? <laughs> Because it's very consensus-driven, I was used to very hierarchical or very flat organizations. And it took a while to figure out the way it works is that if you can convince someone that what you're talking about is actually going to be something that's going to make the world a better place for kids, they'll, they'll do it. And, you know, that, that's, that's really the key, I think. So I guess the animal behavior comes back around. Carolyn Miles, thank you so much for joining us today on Displaced. Thank, thank you, you so much, Carolyn. Thank you, Ravi and Grant. Thank you so much for listening. At the International Rescue Committee, we'd love to thank Catherine Long, Ben Moskowitz, and Alex Bandea, who helped make this happen. And at Vox Media, our team is senior producer Golda Arthur, associate producer Jelani Carter, and Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Box Media's executive producer of audio is Nishat Kowa. We would love to hear from you. Tell us what you think, who you'd like to see on this show, and anything else that you may be feeling about humanitarian crises and what we're talking about here. Email us at displaced at rescue.org. And please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love a review from you as well. Thank you for listening and see you next week. <laughs>